Hi, I'm Bradley Barth, senior reporter with SC Media here at Black Hat in Las Vegas, and I'm podcasting today with Camille Francois, chief innovation officer at Graphica. Now, Graphica is a New York-based company that uses artificial intelligence to study online communities, social media, and even strategic influence campaigns. Uh, And Camille played a very prominent role in researching Russia's disinformation campaign uh, as part of their overall interference into the 2016 U.S. elections. And we'll be talking a little bit about that today. Uh, Camille, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's my pleasure. And uh, let's start by learning a little bit more about actually what Graphica does and your role there. Thanks. Uh, So I'm the chief innovation officer. So in practice, I oversee our teams doing analysis, uh, investigation, and our labs team that's focused on uh, the latest scientific discoveries that help us push the edge of computational social sciences to analyze online patterns uh, of online discussions. So in the aftermath of the 2016 U.S. elections and the discovery of a uh, pervasive uh, Russian interference campaign to meddle in the elections, uh, Grafico was tapped to conduct uh, research on behalf of the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence to really determine the extent of their meddling. Um, so tell me what that was like when the, uh, the call came in that day. That's a pretty massive you know, responsibility to be thrown on your shoulders. Yeah, there was quite a day. Uh, I remember, uh, so our CEO, John, is actually the one who called me, and uh, he said, uh, hey, Cam, why would you say if uh, we had access to the actual data uh, and data traces from the Russian troll farm activity on Google, on Twitter, and on Facebook, and on Instagram, and we could really look into what exactly happened? And I kind of thought he was pulling my leg, and I was like, yeah, John, that would be great. Bring over the magic data box. And he was like, okay, let's do it. And then I realized it was, uh, you know, the the beginning of our our big and large uh, investigation with the Senate. I have to say we were also blessed by formidable colleagues on the other side of the Atlantic. We worked hand-in-hand with researchers at the Oxford Internet Institute who are also uh, wonderful scholars with deep expertise in understanding how influence evolves uh, online and in online conversations. So give me a little bit of a window into what the research process was like, uh, what went into it, and you know, I think what, at what point did it maybe dawn on you from looking at all the data of just how massive and sophisticated a campaign it truly was? Yeah, it was a lot of data, and it's a seven-month-long investigation. Um, it, it also was an interesting process because while it was theoretically the most comprehensive data set ever assembled on the Russian interference it was still not the full data set, and there's still bits and pieces of this campaign that have not been documented and have not been studied. And so I think uh, at least my first instinct was to take stock of what this revealed, but also what was still uh, a missing piece in that puzzle. The other thing that I was quite interested in is we had historical data, and 
Therefore, we saw everything that came before the U.S. efforts. And particularly, we saw that specific troll farm, the Internet Research Agency, use these mechanisms to control their own domestic Russian conversation and then to start a series of operations in Ukraine uh, and in sort of their uh, near geography. And understanding how those campaigns were really first uh, used against their own domestic population, used in Europe, and then finally deployed in the U.S. Uh, was a quite fascinating phenomenon to observe. Give me a sense from your own observations as to how Russia was able to so successfully turn various uh, digital platforms and other assets that everyday Americans use to their advantage in spreading fake news, disinformation. What went into that? So much went into that. I, I could talk to you about this for hours. So, so let me pick um, two examples to top of my head that I think are interesting. Um, the first one is it takes a long time to create false personas that are going to have the type of influence that you need in order to do a successful campaign. You can't just create a fake account, turn it on, and start shouting in your own corner of the universe. What they really did is they curated these personas, and when you do a network analysis of how those personas were connected to the rest of the actual American political conversation, you realize that they had managed to really weave in these assets within the fabric of how Americans discuss po politics online. And so that's the important thing is it took forever to create and curate those personas that were later activated against the American public. Multiple years of curation. The second thing that uh, you know I think we, we often uh, forget is they didn't just do uh, divisive political content. In order to create this influence, you have to do a mix of funny content, Kim Kardashian jokes, and then a really racist tweet, right? Uh, and so that's that's the, the, the really subtle art of mimicking the American conversation and slowly uh, increasingly weaponizing it by, in, you know, by, by increasing the divisiveness of, of the messages. I said two things, but a third thing comes to mind that I think is really funny. Okay. The other thing that we did see in the data set is how much they played each platform uh, against the other. And so, you know, there wasn't a concerted effort in Silicon Valley to suddenly say, oh yeah, that's a problem, we're all going to work on it hand in hand and deactivate it. What really happened is each platform sort of like came to that recognition on their own timing. And as a result, those accounts who were operating across platform, right? So you had a false persona, and then she had a Twitter account, but she would also maybe like, you know, run ads on Google, but she would also be active in Facebook groups. It operates across platform. Their identities were shut down in different stages. Facebook took the lead in deactivating a lot of these accounts, and particularly the set of assets who were pretending to be um, African-American activist online. And when that happened, 
those fake accounts took it to Twitter to complain about being deactivated on Facebook and to accuse Facebook of supporting white supremacists. And that dynamic uh, was fascinating to observe for the first time because finally we had this data set across platform and we could see how much uh, that campaign was was efficient at making those platform, um, you know, really clash with one another. Now, you actually testified in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee, didn't you? So what was that experience like? Um, yeah, it's quite something. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I hope that we uh, managed to convey the, our, our findings and, um, and to help to help the public understand sort of the depth and sophistication of, of the Russian campaign. Well, based on your findings, how better prepared are we for 2020? Because we'll probably see a repeat performance from um, the Russians and perhaps other actors. So give me a sense as to how adequately prepared we are. Okay. Do you want the good first or do you want the bad first? Uh, let's start with the good. Okay. So... The good is when this first happened in 2016, it's fair to say that um, we were all caught flat-footed. The Silicon Valley companies, for instance, didn't really have clear rules that would prevent this behavior on their platforms. Uh, they were not thinking about these types of influence campaigns. They didn't have teams set up to detect them. And frankly, it wasn't really clear what to do about it. Those days are over. Um, I think it's fair to say that the industry has really done a 360 on these issues. Now you have a set of platform policies on, on all the platforms that clearly lay out what is acceptable behavior with regard to influence campaign. Uh, you have teams who are well equipped to detect those behavior and we've entered now a steady cadence of uh, detecting these types of activity and deactivating that. That's a good news. Okay, now what's the bad news? <laughs> uh, there's a series of bad news. Um, the first one is it's a little bit of a more crowded space now on the adversary side. Uh, there's a lot of threat actors who are uh, willing and you know equipped to use information operation to uh, manipulate um, foreign audiences. I think of state actors, but unfortunately there's also a for hire market of troll farms that you can really purchase to uh, to deploy uh, in in any political conversation. So, you know, the crowding of the adversarial space is one problem. The other thing is we've gotten our uh, act together on the major platforms, but there's also a multiplication of other platforms that might be targeted by these types of operations. On those, moderation might be harder, detection might be harder, what to do about it might be less straightforward. Um, and so that, that also comes to mind as, as something that's going to be a difficulty down the road as we prepare for 2020. So in other words, uh, while we've seen uh, d digital and uh, social media platforms like Twitter and, and Facebook uh, take steps finally to uh, remove uh, offending accounts, fake accounts, um, things of that nature, uh, there's going to potentially be um, other platforms that didn't necessarily experience this problem the last time that that actually may uh, encounter it this time. Can you? Is there an example you might be able to give me of what would be thinking a little bit more out of the box? 
WhatsApp comes to mind. I mean, we've seen WhatsApp be a vector for the spread of disinformation campaign around the globe. Uh, WhatsApp is end-to-end -end encrypted. Um, you know, series of alternative platforms comes to mind. Telegram comes to mind. I mean, um, there's unfortunately you know, plenty of potential uh, vectors there. The other thing is we're going to have to be rigorous and level-headed. Um, the fake news about fake news is also part of the problem. And so if, uh, if, if the general public sort of gets fed a steady diet of uh, alarming headlines that everything they see on the Internet might be a Russian troll, that's not going to be helpful. So we also have to enter this moment uh, with, uh, with a little bit of, um, yeah, rigor and, and level-headedness that I think is uh, going to be quite important. Are you concerned at all about the advent of uh, deepfakes videos? I am less concerned about the advent of deepfakes videos than I am concerned about uh, the cat and mouse on new platforms that can be exploited, new uh, IO behavior that can be uh, deployed and, and hard to detect. And simply because... Frankly, having looked at a lot of information operations campaign, more often than not, the content that they use is either authentic content that, frankly, is stolen from blogs or from the organic conversation that you're trying to influence, or it's slightly decontextualized content. Uh, some people say shallow fake, right? It's a, it's a picture, it's a real picture, but perhaps like the subtitle is wrong. Or it's a picture and it's you know slightly modified. What I'm trying to say is, it, it isn't necessarily the case that you need a very strong deepfake video in order to get a big impact. So while I'm, I'm delighted that my colleagues are working on better detection techniques, it's not the first threat that comes to mind when I think about information operations getting increasingly sophisticated. All right, great. Good stuff. Um, thanks so much, Camille. I really appreciate it. That's Camille Francois, Chief Innovation Officer at Graphica. And I am Bradley Barth, Senior Reporter with SC Media. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, have a safe day online.